0: If you would, please turn your Bibles to Psalm 19. The 19th Psalm, you'll find it on page 538 of the Pew Bible, if you want to use that. Page 538, Psalm 19. I would guess, and it's just a guess, but I think it's a good one, that most of us are familiar with this psalm. And just as I said Psalm 19, probably many of you, the psalm popped into your mind. This is one of the best known and probably well-loved psalms in the Psalter. And if you skim through the liturgies, I got to do this a little this week, you skim through the liturgies of the past and present, the different Christian traditions, you note that Psalm 19 is used with great frequency. It's very common because it's so loved. And it fully deserves, I think, that reputation for greatness. In order to do some justice to its importance and its richness, I want to preach on it more than once. So tonight we will focus just on verses 1 through 6, the first stanza of the psalm. But before I read it, just a quick note that unlike many other psalms, this psalm is not is not a cry to God nor does this psalm call on us to speak or to sing at least not right away most psalms do one of those they either have a prayer or they have a praise prayer prayer feel or a praise feel they urge us to speak to join our voice in some way with the psalmist but psalm 19 is unique it is first of all a call to listen to listen and then later on to meditate, and then possibly to speak. But above all, it is about listening. As the psalm comes to an end, you see there at the bottom of the psalm, verse 14, David's famous words, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's almost a hint of hesitancy on David's part, isn't there? I think he's Hesitant uh, just a little to add to the first 13 verses that meditate upon creation and the law, the word and creation. And he takes a second to say, Let my meditations then be acceptable to you. As we read this psalm, then, as we study it together, I want to encourage you and myself to adopt that same attitude of listening. This is a listening psalm. Are we really listening? to God's creation and what it's saying about him? Are we deeply listening to God's law, the Torah, the first five books, it's what David has in mind here, as it speaks to us about who God really is? Well, let's read tonight. Let's read and may God grant us listening ears. Please stand as I read to you Psalm 19, a listening psalm. which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask uh, for his blessing. Father, we thank you that all nature sings your praise, and we would ask that through this time of teaching and learning, we would join our hearts to that song that all creation, including humanity and its rebellion, would lift its voice up in praise to the creator. We know, Father, that we cannot do this in our own strength. Our corruption and our sin is just too strong. So we ask that your spirit, who brood over the first creation, would now come and hover over us and bring out of us this new song that you might be glorified. We pray, Father, that you do these things so that your son would be lifted up in our presence and that we might be drawn to him, and we pray and ask it for his sake and in his name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. How can how can people like us know God? How can we know God? Sounds like a fairly simple question, but the more you consider it, the more profound it becomes. How can people, people whose lives are so short and difficult, ever really know anything about God? When we look at our universe, we are confronted with an intimidating reality. God is far more intelligent, powerful, and complex than we can possibly imagine or even begin to comprehend. How can we even begin then to comprehend a being with this kind of intelligence and power? I would argue that the more you think about this, the more overwhelming the question becomes. The difference between us and God, the gap, if you will, between us and God, is far greater than the gap between, say, humans and animals. The distance between an ant and a human is far narrower than the distance between God and mankind. So how can we know anything about God? Or we might ask it this way, aren't all our thoughts, all our thoughts at the end of the day, all our thoughts about God hopelessly simplistic? We may try to speak about God, but what hope do we really have of being in any way accurate? The Bible gives three answers to that question. We're not going to cover them all tonight, but let me give them to you really briefly. First of all, the Bible agrees with the question. And the Bible reminds us that we cannot know the mind of the Lord, and we cannot be his counselor. Second, though, however, the Bible does assert very strongly that although we can't know God fully, we can know the pieces he reveals to us. In other words, yes, we're too little, we're too weak to know anything, but because God is infinitely intelligent, he can communicate truth to us. And then lastly, thirdly, the Bible joyfully declares that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that revelation of who God is has been made to us as never before. Maybe the best way to express this is to say that we never know anything. We never know anything the way God knows it. God knows all that he knows comprehensively, fully, down to the bottom. He also knows how all things come together, how they're all connected and what they all mean. We cannot ever know anything that way. However, we can know things in a creaturely way. When my children were young, they couldn't understand what electricity was or how the house was wired, but they were able to understand the danger of putting a finger in the socket. In the same way, as God's children, we can know things truly and really, but always as creatures, not comprehensively like the Creator." Now, Psalm 19, the whole of the Psalm, is a celebration, a celebration of the two main ways God has revealed himself to us so that we can know something about him. In verses one through six, David delights in the way creation, especially the heavens, declare the glory of God. God is the ultimate artist, and he has hung up his paintings all around us, so that even we, little creatures that we are, can know something about him. We live in his art gallery. More than that, we are his art. But that is not all we have. For then, in verses 7 through 11, David rejoices in the giving of Scripture. Especially for David, the giving of the Torah, or law, the first five books of the Bible... Alongside God's creation, we also have God's word. Theologians call this, and hopefully my class knows this a little bit, theologians call these two general and special revelation. General revelation is general because we all have access to it. We all see it. It's everywhere around us. You and I are actually part of general revelation as we're made in the image of God. God. When a human being denies God's existence, they do that denying as a living walking picture of the God they're denying. They're in an absolutely hopeless situation since they are themselves walking revelation. Even while they're raging against God, they're using the intellect, the words, the gifts that God has given them as image bearers. And so they're in a hopeless position, opposing themselves, even as they oppose God. That's general revelation. Special revelation, on the other hand, is revelation found in God's word. God inspired holy men of old to write the law and the gospel so that we might know God through Jesus Christ. Tonight, we want to look just at verses 1 through 6 at general or natural revelation. What is the sky telling us about God, and how should we respond? In these verses, we'll see that the heavens, the heavens provide a vital guide to us as to who God is. Specifically, I want you to notice with me three things. That the heavens provide a constant, a clear, and a joyful witness to the God of Scripture. Let's look at those three claims together. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, the heavens give a constant witness to their creator. And they've been doing this literally since the very first day of creation. Look again at those verses. David writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, this may sound obvious, but what exactly is David talking about when he says that the heavens and sky bring glory to God and reveal him to us? Well, if you go back to Genesis, and that is definitely what David is doing here, you read that God made the heavens and sky, or some older translations have it, and this might be how you remember it. I know I did growing up with the King James, the heavens and the firmament. David is using the exact same Hebrew words here that are used in Genesis 1. He took them right out of his Bible. Listen to that account in Genesis 1, verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse, that's the word sky in Hebrew, in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. In that reading, Moses describes God making an expanse or a firmament or the skies, that is what we would call today scientifically our atmosphere. And then you have the creation of the heavens, what we might call today space. Sometimes the Bible combines these two into one, and it simply calls them the heavens, plural. So you have what we call space, and then you have our atmosphere, the barrier that protects our planet. I think that's the meaning of the Hebrew here. The skies and space, then, are what David is talking about. They declare the glory of God. And this is what Psalm 8 is after, and we just sang. When it says that God has placed his glory, where? Above the heavens. It means that his throne room is above even space. He's not out there on the moon somewhere. But even above space, his throne exists. I remember some years ago being with my wife in the Dominican Republic at a resort uh, in Punta Cana in the northern part of the Dominican, which is less built up. There's less uh, uh, cities and ambient light. And I'll never forget standing on that beach at night and looking at the sky. It was really hard to believe that all that beauty was there all the time, but I couldn't see it in New Jersey. We can only imagine the views of space that David had as he laid out with the sheep at night. No electric lighting, no ambient light, no pollution of any kind. It must have been stunning, and it still is. So this is what David has in mind. But what he really wants us to notice about this witness is how constant it is. It's always above us. We were born under this witness and we will die under this witness. It is regular. It is ceaseless. That's why he adds verse two, day to day, night to night. During the day, think about it, during the day, The lights are on, so to speak. We see ourselves as creatures. We see the earth and the sky, and we see how they all witness to God's glory. But then isn't it wonderful that at night the lights are dimmed, space opens up to us, and we can see the beyond. So you see, the day and night are performing a great responsive reading, one great antiphonal song. Think of the rare occasion when we sing men and women. The women sing and the men reply, or the men sing and the women reply. In my early days as a pastor, I never cared for this kind of singing, men and women. But with the anti-creational message of our culture, the beauty and diversity of men and women has become more meaningful and delightful. As we respond to each other in worship, men and women singing responsively back to each other, We're singing with antiphonal lyrics, responding, and we become much like night and day as they take turns praising God. The more you think on this, I think you'll come to see this remarkable reality that we are actually living inside a clock, if I can put it that way. The star of Bethlehem was like a gong announcing the changing of the hour, the dawn approaching. We live in an art gallery, and the walls are covered with God's works. They declare his glory, his goodness, his power, and his love. So the sky and space, then, are a silent but powerful and constant witness to God's glory. That's what David is after. If you meditate on the heavens, even for just 15 concentrated minutes... You can come to some simple but powerful conclusions. First, God is good. God is good. Nothing evil could create such beauty. Second, God is infinitely powerful. He's not only able to put the stars in place, but he also even maintains the regularity, the day-to-day, the night-to-night of all life. If time allows, no doubt, you would make many, many other conclusions, maybe above all of them. As you look at the sky, you just realize this. He is God and I am not. He is God and I am not. Sadly, our modern world doesn't allow for much stargazing. That's why I had to go to a beach in the Dominican to see it. Uh, We rarely look up. Modern people are always looking down. We're always looking forward. Unlike our ancestors, we don't live by the regularity of nature anymore. We don't know what it is to have time off during the winter or to celebrate the end of the harvest. Our computer is always nearby and the work is endless. Modern roads paved hard and efficient cars mean that we can ignore the seasons. Electric lighting makes life much safer. I'm thankful for it. We're using it right now, but we no longer see the stars. So in light of this, let me suggest that we enjoy nature as a congregation and allow it to bring healing and joy to our life. I know this sounds like I'm selling essential oils, or worse yet, that I've embraced some kind of new age philosophy But I'm not talking, I'm not talking about the stupidity of our ancestors who worshipped rocks and stars. Or the New Age movement, which is just a revival of the stupidity. Such nonsense died with the invention of the telescope and the microscope. Nature is not God. David, unlike so many poets of his age, did not worship the heavens. You notice that. But he did listen to them. He heard their witness. So many of us have found peace, focus, and rest when out in nature. Maybe this is why Jesus himself would find lonely places to pray. So make the time. Find a way. Listen to the chorus of the heavens. They are declaring the glory of God, and we desperately need to hear that message. Best of all, this glory is waiting for you just outside these doors. No cost, no break. Day to day and night to night pours forth speech. The concert is free and it never ends. So the witness here is a constant witness to the glory of God in the skies or the heavens. Second, notice with me in verses three and four that this constant witness that is always above us is also, David says, a clear witness. It comes to us in a language which everyone can understand. It is never lost in translation. This is David's point in verses 3 through 4. Here in these verses, he puts forth a great irony. One of the world's loudest witnesses to God's glory is wordless. It's unspoken. Look at those verses. The text reads, There is no speech, and you can insert here, to this witness nor are there words to this witness, whose voice, its voice, is never heard. And yet, the voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. David here is struck with a deep irony, isn't he? The witness is universal and clear, but it doesn't take place in words. Think about it. If if the only witness to God's glory was Scripture... If the only concert praising God was in Hebrew or Greek, then many people could not understand the witness. They would have to wait centuries for missionaries or translators. But God has not left himself without a witness. There is no speech or words. Its voice is not heard, and yet it is clear. The lack of words then, far from being a liability, is actually a strength This witness, unlike the scriptures, needs no translation. We'll see next time that the scriptures and the scriptural witness to God is above, it is better than this uh, witness of nature. However, nature does have this one great advantage. It doesn't need to be translated. It is universal. And importantly here, it is clear, David says. Now put these words for a moment. Take these words for a moment and put them back into David's context the time when David wrote this. Pretty much all the nations around Israel worship the heavens, the sun, and the moon. They would quite literally wish upon a star. Part of what David is saying here, and the rest of the Bible confirms this, is that God will hold these nations, these pagan nations, morally responsible for this idolatry. Now, why does God do that, we might ask? After all, many of these nations, they had no Bible, they had no scripture, they had no Torah, they may have never had a missionary visit them, a Jew come and preach the gospel to them. Why then is God judging them? David gives the answer here, because they have a witness that needs no interpretation and they persist in willful ignorance. Ignorance. Many hundreds of years later, the apostle Paul took up this same point and applied it to his own day. In the letter to the Romans, Paul uses this psalm twice in key moments to make his gospel argument. Beginning in Romans 1, he uses these concepts and this language to remind us that all have sinned and come short of God's glory and that all are under God's wrath. Listen once again to those important words from Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, actively suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his power, his goodness, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've clearly perceived it, Paul writes ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And then Paul says, so, or therefore, they are without excuse. Paul then goes on in Romans 10 to quote this psalm as evidence that Jews and Gentiles, even those who have not received a missionary, they all have basic access to who God is. The details? No but enough to know God and his essential attributes, enough to be guilty. So his point is this. There is such a clear witness in creation that to not hear it, to not hear it, is an act of covenantal rebellion. This is a difficult teaching. It was difficult when David wrote it, and I know it's still difficult today. On the one hand, uh, we want to affirm That unbelievers, our neighbors, our friends, our family who don't believe, they're very ignorant in many ways of who God is and what he requires. And we rightly have sympathy on people who have never read the Bible or who have never had the gospel explained to them. We should love and pity these people and come alongside them with grace and patience. However, at the same time, we can't ignore this teaching. They are not Innocent. Their ignorance is not pure ignorance, it is willful ignorance. Creation may not give them enough information in order to be fully reconciled to God, but creation does give a clear witness as to the basic character of God. Those who hear and obey that creational witness will search out the Word of God and cry out in reverent prayer. This is Paul's point in Romans 1 and again in chapter 10 of that letter. They aren't really ignorant so much as they are rebellious. They are actively suppressing what deep down they know to be true. Now, this shouldn't make us less compassionate. We were once like that. In fact, every day we are tempted to act like that, even as Christians, aren't we? Like you... I catch myself daily suppressing some scriptural truth or another because I don't want to hear it. So we must be compassionate. We can relate. The heavens then, along with creation, all of creation is God's art gallery. We're living inside of it. And when we refuse to look and worship him, it's because we have hardened our hearts and are actively suppressing the truth. Nevertheless, despite what we do or say or think, there's a constant and a clear witness to God in creation. The concert continues, even if we refuse to join in with the music. So we see first that it's a constant witness. Day to day is bubbling forth speech to God's glory. It's a clear witness. God, Paul, and others affirm again and again that the man know this, that it's there. It's to be seen. Everyone hears it, every language, every nation. Third and lastly, notice with me this I think, very important point. This witness, as it is constant and clear, so it is also joyful. It's joyful. Look at verses 5 and 6, really looking at the end of 4. In them, that is in the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun. He comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. The sun, of course, I don't have to tell you, dominates our sky and our view of the heavens, so it makes sense, doesn't it, that David's mind latches onto the sun as the dominant example of God's heavenly ministry of revelation to us. Unlike everyone else alive at this time, David does not view the sun as divine. Rather, he views it as a joyful witness to God's goodness This is part of why Christianity gave birth to so much of our best science and why it continues to grow in developing countries. Since the Bible never taught that creation was God, it was suited for the scientific age. Paganism, the paganism of our ancestors largely died in the light of science. Eventually, people figured out that the tree wasn't oozing sap because it was a witch tree. It just had an illness. And those who worshiped the sun could not continue when they could see that it was just a planet, a star on fire. But the Bible always avoided all this and inspired most of our science because it expected order and saw the creation as just that, a creation." That being said, we do see here that David does write poetically. He doesn't deify the sun, doesn't call it a god, but he does write poetry about it, doesn't he? David here uses metaphorical language to describe what the sun does. It is like a bridegroom or a strong man, it runs its course with joy. Of course, we know the sun doesn't go into a tent. In fact, if you think about it, The sun does not set, although we talk that way. We say to each other, did you see the sunrise this morning? But of course, the sun doesn't rise. It only appears that way. David is speaking here of appearance. He's speaking poetically. David's focus isn't scientific accuracy. Rather, he wants to point up to us the deep joy that is embedded in all of creation. The sun is like a bridegroom he rises and joyfully runs his course. In Jewish life, a wedding was a major public occasion. The whole village would take part, and the groom would process from his home to the bride's home or to their new home together. And he would do this, of course, with joy, eagerness, and celebration. Think for a moment how different this perspective is than the one being force-fed to us on a daily basis in our culture. In our culture today, nature is seen as violence and chaos. It is a mindless struggle for dominance. For modern Western people, what lies at the heart of all things is chance and violence. The world, that we're told, just happened to come into being, and now it is governed by the endless violence of natural selection. Some secular people may dare to call this process lovely in some sense. They may watch nature with great love and attention, but they can never tap into the heart of what David says here. What they fail to see is that at its heart, nature is joyful. It loves being what it is. It loves being in harmony with its creator. The cultural and intellectual conflict of our day comes down to this very verse. Is the world a place of order, meaning, design, and joy? Or is it a place of disorder, meaningless until our minds define it and endlessly adaptable to our desires? To quote the title of Professor Howard's little masterpiece book, we might ask, is it all chance or is it all dance? Is it a lovely doomed biological experiment? Or on the other hand, is it like a joyful bridegroom executing the moves taught to it by its creator? The sun, along with all the rest, tells us that God is essentially happy, creative, loving, deep, and good. The heavens are not pragmatic after all. He didn't just do what was necessary. He went nuts, we would say, in modern language. He went nuts with colors. He made stars that have no immediate purpose except beauty and joy. Again, this is why we need to take advantage of opportunities to spend time in nature as God allows. We can only fully sing the psalm as we go out and look at the heavens and the earth and think David's thoughts after them. We must feel the constant power of this witness day and night. We must recognize the inescapable clarity of that testimony. No words, but a clear message nonetheless. And lastly, We've missed the song altogether if we don't feel the joy. The joy of a man with his wife is written in the skies for all to see. That said, please know that the full joy and meaning of this psalm is not experienced in nature, but is only fully experienced when we look to Christ. Preaching 1,700 years ago, St. Augustine, took this psalm, this very psalm, and pointed his people to Christ. He reminded them, as I remind you, that God's glory is not finally, ultimately, revealed in the heavens. It is there, but that's not the final revelation of his glory. They are marvelous, no doubt. But God's final, greatest manifestation of his glory comes only when we look to Jesus, who is the exact imprint of his Father. Augustine reminded his congregation of John, chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus eclipses the sun and he outshines the stars. In his birth, ministry, death, and resurrection, we have the greatest witness imaginable to the character of God. In everything he did, he as never before declared the glory of God. He poured forth revelation. And this is why it's so important that you and I listen to him that we turn to him every day, every moment of every day. With the coming of Jesus Christ into our world, God has spoken his final and perfect word. To turn from Jesus is then to turn against the truest, clearest revelation of God's glory. Speaking in the great city of Athens, Paul warned the ancient Greeks about this. For centuries, they had worshipped the creation and dozens of local and national deities. But listen to what Paul said on that fateful day. This is from Acts 17. He said to these philosophers, "...the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent." because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Only by giving our whole self, our whole attention to Jesus, can we really appreciate Psalm 19. In fact, if you only gaze at the heavens, and hear that glory song, you're going eventually to feel nothing but sadness, a deep sadness. Why? Because eventually, as you look at creation, you're going to realize that though its song is lovely, the song is also broken. You see, we were meant by God to sing antiphonally for all time. Antiphonal singing is where one group sings and the other responds. It's musical responsive reading. As you hear the heavens make their song, or you walk in the forest at night, or you stand on a pristine beach, you can hear the witness of creation. But tragically, mankind, we have broken the song. Creation keeps singing their part, but we refuse to respond with our part. The great worship service that was supposed to be ours is now chaos and war because of sin. The creation keeps on singing its part all these long years later, but now mixed with the song, Paul tells us in Romans that creation is now groaning as well, groaning under the weight of our sin because we have broken the worship service, refused to sing, refused to respond. Nature then is right again and the world is right again, only when we enter into this great responsive reading. The earth declares and the heavens declare, and then we declare. This is what corporate worship, what we're doing right now, is all about. We come together on Sunday and we admit together when we confess our sins that we have lost the lines. We've moved out of sync with the song of creation. We have refused to sing our part. But then we look to Jesus and the symphony is healed. And so we gather each week, day to day and night to night, we gather to heal the song. Let's pray. Father, we do hear around us in all of creation, your beauty, your glory, your goodness, We do see even more clearly your goodness in the person and work of our dear Savior. And then we look within and we find a rebellious heart that does not want to respond, does not want to take up this song. How thankful we are that Jesus, our Savior, died for such rebellious hearts and that even now Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is healing the song. Return to us then the great worship service that was broken by our first parents. And bring us into your presence with praise for all eternity. In the new heavens and earth, unite the song as one and heal us and the song we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.